You're listening to the Exegete Podcast by Gary Livengood. This is Lesson 4 in our series on 2 Peter. Hello and uh, welcome to our study in the book of 2 Peter, this uh, incredibly valuable book that teaches us about a false teaching and false messiahs and, and heresies, just such a valuable t- book for our times. We are reading uh, and studying in this session, 2 Peter chapter 1, we'll look at verses 9 through 11. I'll read those in a moment. Uh, previously, we've talked about um, the eight virtues, the golden chain of virtues that Peter lists there in the previous verses. Uh, eight virtues, as well as he mentions the importance of fruitfulness in your faith and in those matters of the virtues. But then he goes on in verse 9 and uh, gives us a little bit of a warning here. So verse 9 through 11. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. So Peter, as he moves on from the discussion about the virtues and the, the uh, importance of fruitfulness, he, he says there's, there's kind of two uh, serious issues here he mentions. Um, he says, he who lacks these qualities, there in verse 9, is blind or short-sighted and has forgotten his purification from his former sins. So first of all, spiritual, spiritually blind, uh, spiritual blindness, or at the very least, uh, short-sighted, that is, he cannot see with a right perspective. Uh, you cannot see with a with a spiritual and a godly perspective if if you uh, aren't diligent about these things. If you don't stay engaged in them, in them. Uh, actually, First Corinthians two twelve talks about. Uh, the the hope the hoped for difference between believers and the world in regard to these kind of matters. So this is First uh, Corinthians beginning in chapter two verse twelve. Paul says, "Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things, know the things freely given to us by God." which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So, as we grow in the Christian virtues, our perspectives change. They ought to change. They better change, honestly. They ought to change as we grow. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So, the world belongs to the Lord. It's his creation Everything in it belongs to God, and therefore, as we grow in our relationship with him and the virtues, our perspectives ought to change, because 
Why? Because the world belongs to God anyway. It doesn't belong to the devil, ultimately. It belongs to God. Now, the devil has a temporary fiefdom here on, in, in the earth, on the earth, but it's all, it all belongs to God. And therefore, again, because it's God's kingdom, it's God's creation, as we draw near to him, our perspective should change on everything. We should start seeing people and circumstances and our goals and objectives, our worldviews, our philosophies, our purposes, and even the mundane activities of life, we should start seeing all those things through a spiritual lens, a biblical lens. And by the way, when I mention the word, the word uh, worldview, uh, there's kind of uh, there's kind of four issues there that are bound up with the with the idea of a worldview. Everybody has a worldview, uh, even if you don't know you have a worldview, you do. But there's four, there's kind of basically four questions that uh, we answer in developing our worldview, uh, or four things we think about. And these kind of shape our worldview. Those four things are, and, and every human being, again, has some opinion on these. First of all, what is our origin? Where did humanity come from? Where did you and I as individuals come from? That has to do with Questions of uh, who created us, was the universe an accident, uh, Those, all those kind of things. So the origin. The second would be the morality we live by. Everybody has some moral system they live by. Um, so the question is, well, where did my moral system come from? Is it valid? Is it objective? Um, is it absolute? The third question would be, what's my purpose in life? Am I an accident? I, I remember a a uh, um, funny song out of, I think it was probably the 60s or the 70s, uh, that said, you are a fluke of the universe. Um, well, you're not a fluke of the universe, obviously. Uh, but the question is, well, what's my purpose? Why have I come into existence? And the fourth question, the fourth matter uh, defining your worldview is, what is my destiny? What happens after I die? Do I just rot in the grave? Do I go to be one with the universe? If there's some sort of Zen thing that happens? Is there a little literal heaven? So these four questions, origin, morality, purpose, and destiny, shape our worldview. And if you're a believer, that those four things ought to entirely be uh, addressed and informed by the Holy Scriptures. So uh, we ought to grow in virtue, in Christian virtues, and our perspectives ought to change and ought to change into alignment with the Word of God. Uh, we ought to see God in everything, and I certainly don't mean some sort of pantheism there. Uh, God is not everything, but he is in everything in one sense. He is everywhere. So we ought to see God in all the activities of our lives, in all the places we're at. That's good. That's appropriate. And that is God's intention. Uh, this is a, a fundamental principle in the power of the gospel. Everywhere we look, we see God at work. Uh, in our lives and those around him, as well as our world and our universe. John twelve forty six says, I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Again, as you grow in your Christian virtues, uh, your perspectives will change. And, and the Lord, Jesus, does not want us to remain in darkness. He came into the world as light, and he brought great light into the world. And if you believe in Jesus, you should not remain in darkness about uh, certainly any of those uh, five or six matters I mentioned a, a minute ago.
So then the question is, is your perspective changing because of your relationship with Christ? It ought to be. Uh, if it's not changing at all, well, there's probably a, a problem here. Uh, these virtues that Peter mentions, and there's certainly many more we could mention, these are evidence or proof of spiritual growth. And not only that, they are a means to more spiritual growth. So there's a cumulative effect in that, but it also, the, the inertia of it, if you will, propels us forward into more growth. Now, the second thing that Peter mentions here, a problem is uh, he who lacks these qualities has forgotten his purification from sins. Pretty important matter. His purification from his former sins. Uh, Former sins, probably, Peter means here by uh, the sins that you were involved with before you got saved. Uh, This may be a reference to you uh, who forgot what happened when you got saved. If that has been lost in your in the in what's important to you, well, uh, that's a big problem. You've forgotten your purification from your former sins. Again, those sins probably referred to before you got saved. Uh, I don't think Peter is necessarily saying you've completely forgotten your salvation, but at the very least, you forgot the purifying effect of your salvation. The matter of turning from sin, uh, the matter of denying. Uh, of self, uh, the matter of uh, the truth of Matthew 6.33, seeking first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. You've forgotten those things, uh, the purifying effect of your salvation. There's, there's several things that happen at that instant you got saved. At least five things happened, and, and we define these theologically. Uh, God's not looking down and saying, well, I wonder if I got those five things done in uh, Gary's life. But uh, these are five ways that, you know, humanly, theologically, um, we kind of define what happens in salvation. One is justification. That is, you are declared righteous by God. The righteousness of Christ is put into your account, and you are forgiven of your sins. Your guilt is expunged from the record. That's a very judicial act. I think we've talked about that before. Uh, So justification, also regeneration. Remember, you were born spiritually dead. Uh, Ephesians 2.1 and other passages mention that. But when you got saved, uh, the scripture says you passed out of death into life. And uh, what happened there was the Holy Spirit came into your dead spirit. He quickened it or brought it to life. And then you had spiritual life. Then you were able to commune with God. So justification and regeneration. And then also this matter of initial sanctification. At that time you got saved, you were set apart to God. Um, The noun form of that in the Greek is hagiasmos, the verb hagiazo, but the idea, that's where we get the term made holy, sanctified, set apart to God. Now, sanctification is also a progressive thing that is intended to go on throughout our lives, but when you got saved, you were set apart to God. Initial sanctification happened. Here's a fourth thing. You were converted. That should be obvious, right? But you went from the old life to the new life. Uh, This is a very existential matter. A convert is one who has a seminal change in the reality of his existence. A seminal change in your existence came when you got converted. Uh, You went from the old life to the new, the old man to the new, from lost to saved 
to being of the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of God's world, from not being a child of God to being a child of God, from not being in the family of God to being the to being in the family of God, and many more we could say. Conversion, old life to new life. And then one more thing that happened when you got saved, this all happened in that instant you got saved. Galatians 4, 4 says, you were adopted into God's family. You were not a child or a people of God. Now you are a child of God, and you are part of the people of God. You were adopted into his family. And I would suggest that all five of those things I just mentioned, all have to do in one way or another with purification from sin. And this seems to be uh, the thing that these people are in danger of forgetting. These and the cost of these to Jesus, I mean, it cost him his life through incredible agonizing suffering. These things ought to never allow us to forget that we've been purified from sin. Um, at the very least, we have positionally been purified. We've been declared righteous. Uh, and then, of course, God wants to see us grow in our experiential uh, lives in uh, holiness. But at the very least, you have been purified positionally from sin. If you weren't, you're still lost. So, I mean, we will probably all take communion at some time. Different churches different do it in different uh, intervals, but we all do that. And the reason we take communion, remember what Jesus said? Do this in remembrance of me. We do it to recall these matters. So, uh, don't forget your pur the purif purification from your former sins. Two very serious issues for believers, Peter says. The spiritual blindness and forgetting your purification. And then Peter says in verse 10, Therefore, because of these things, because of the potential for not participating in the virtues, because of the potential to be spiritual blind or short-sighted, because of the potential to forget your purification from your former sins, therefore, he says, be all the more diligent. Diligence is an incredibly key, uh, important, essential aspect of our faith, probably one that we generally don't emphasize enough. The matter of diligence in our faith, the Greek word is spandazzo, and uh, besides the, the specific term diligent, it also means uh, to exert yourself, to give a strong effort, to be zealous for something. Uh, and not only does it mean uh, that in, in terms of the, the quality of it, it also means to hasten to do it. So don't delay Peter says, to make certain of your salvation. Again, verse 10, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says this, for he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now Paul says, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. At least part of the instruction there is about don't delay. Move on. Grow in your salvation. Grow in the virtues. Uh, and then also, uh, that, that certainly speaks to one of Satan's most effective tools, by the way, and that is to get us to delay. Ah, don't do it yet. Oh, don't go to church yet. Yeah, you got plenty of time to read the Bible. Oh, you can pray tomorrow. You know, you can just enjoy that sin one more time. All the lies of Satan. That's all about getting us to delay in uh, making certain of our salvation. And then also James 3, 13 and 14, rather chapter 4, verses 13 and 14 says this. 
James says, come now, you who say, tomorrow or today we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. So true, my friends. That is so true. You don't know what tomorrow is going to be. So don't delay to pursue God, to be diligent in the matters of salvation that God has called to. So stay engaged in your salvation. Um, it's only the most important thing in your life, right? Uh, so it ought to be our top priority. And by the way, I'll bet we all stay very diligent, very spondazzo about the food in our refrigerators and the food in our kitchen cabinets. We want to make sure there's plenty of food in there to eat. And the reality is that merely feeds our temporal, physical bodies. How much more diligent then ought we be in regard to feeding our immortal spirit for eternal life? So be diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. I want to talk about this matter of the calling and the choosing that Peter refers to here in uh, 2 Peter 1.10. This is important. The word calling in the Greek is the word kaleo. Uh, the main idea of kaleo is to invite or call out with a loud voice. And we did discuss kaleo in, uh, in verse 3. The word here related or drawn from Kaleo is klesis. Klesis. Uh, similar, very similar idea in the word klesis. We do know in 2 Peter 3.9 that Peter tells us uh, what percentage of humanity does God call? Well, the answer is there. there is. He calls 100%. God is not willing for any to perish. He wants everyone to be saved. So it makes zero sense that there are major uh, parts of humanity, major percentages of humanity, that God wouldn't call. He calls everyone to salvation, and he invites them. He calls out with a loud voice, as this word klesis means. Um, in fact, the key verse probably in the entire scripture, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, and by the way, Greek term there is cosmos. Cosmos means the whole world. God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son. And of course, the purpose was to bring people to salvation. Um, W.E. Vine, in his expository dictionary of New Testament words, Greek words, on the word cosmos, Vine says, cosmos means the human race, all mankind. So God didn't just call a few. He called everyone. And again, John 3.16, that whosoever whosoever. What does that mean? What does that apply to? It applies to everyone. Now, of course, if does everyone get saved? No, everyone does not get saved. But everyone potentially could get saved because whoever means, guess what whoever means? It means whoever. Now listen, I'm the farthest thing in the world from a universalist. Uh, by no means do I believe everyone gets saved, everyone ends up in heaven, Nothing could be farther from the truth, and that's clearly seen all over the scriptures, and I would especially direct you to Revelation 20 if you have any doubts about that. But uh, God's intention is to save everyone. In John 16, 8, as Jesus talks about 
uh, the fact that he's leaving the disciples, they don't understand what's going on exactly. But he says, it's better for me, for you if I leave, because then I'll send, as we understand it to be, the Holy Spirit. And he says to them, when he, that is the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And yes, there too, the term world is cosmos. He will convict everyone of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the lost is to draw all people to Jesus Christ. So the klesis or the kaleo is an invitation to every human to come to salvation in Jesus Christ. Now the second word there, the calling and then the choosing eklagi or eklagi uh, is sometimes translated as electing. And this word does mean picking out, choosing, selecting people. But please note this, super important point here. Anytime in the New Testament that the words kaleo and eklagi appear together, kaleo, the inviting, is always first. Please understand that. The choosing by God of individuals for salvation is always based on the invitational call of God. It's not ever described as an arbitrary choosing for salvation. Uh, there are passages I could read. There's at least three other passage, passages which uh, say the very same thing, that uh, the uh, the call comes before the choosing. I'll just read one. Well, one of them is in Revelation 17, 14. Another one in Matthew 22, 14. I'll read this one from 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen, but how are they chosen? He says, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So note, even there, it's according to God's foreknowledge. Uh, the choosing comes before, the calling rather, comes before the choosing. Very important point theologically. So who does God choose? Well, he chooses, he picks out for salvation, he elects or selects those whom he foreknows. Uh, he, he knows, he knows, he foreknows their response to the call. Uh, everyone is called, but not every, everyone responds. But God knows who does. And we understand from Romans 8, 29, uh, a great verse, but I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. Paul says, those whom he foreknew, prognosco, he predestined, proorizo. And what did he depress, uh, what did he predestine people to? Not to salvation. Those whom he foreknew, those are the ones that'll be saved. But the destiny of the saved, Paul says right here, is to be conformed to the image of his son. So let's get away from this idea, a wrong idea about predestination. It is certainly a biblical idea, but it is not about who will get saved. The calling comes first and then the choosing or the foreknowledge. And based on the foreknowledge, God predestines. And what is he predestined to? To become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So God looked ahead at humanity being omniscient. He saw who would receive Christ. And of that group, he said, their destiny is to be like my son. Those whom I predestine, they are predestined to be like my son. And then he said, and those are the ones I will call. That's in Romans 8.30. Those are the ones I will kaleo. It's really pretty simple. 
I believe if you just let the scripture speak, uh, it makes a lot of sense. So the choosing, I want to say some more about this, the choosing, the eclectos, never stands on its own. In terms of predestining, it always follows foreknowledge. In terms of choosing, it always follows the calling or the invitation. And listen, if God arbitrarily predestined some to salvation or elected some to salvation, then it's not an invitation. That The word kaleo or klesis makes no sense and it shouldn't be in the scriptures. But again, kaleo or klesis always precedes the choosing in scripture. So, the calling, the inviting determines the choosing, not the choosing determining the calling. And the good news here in the midst of all this, whether you grab all that, grasp all that at once or not, you're familiar with these ideas or not. The good news is that God desires everyone to be saved. That's his heart. So having said that, uh, Peter says, be diligent to make certain about his calling and his choosing you. Make sure you are really in the faith. Make sure you have a real growing relationship with Christ. Make sure your works prove your faith. And that's what James is talking about in James 2. You can say anything you want about having faith, but James says the evidence of your faith is what proves you have real saving faith. Uh, Sometimes that gets missed out on. But if we say we have faith, and as James says, and there's nothing to prove it, it's not really saving faith. Peter says here, as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. And I believe these things, when he says these things, he's referring to those eight virtues, once again, in verses 5 through 7. Practice them. Now, I spent um, my college years and my bachelor's degree and my master's degree as a music major, as a performance major, and it was amazing how... The more, the more I practiced, believe it or not, the better I got. The more hours I spent in that practice room every day, the better and better my playing got. And I noticed also practice was not a mood. I didn't practice when I was in the mood because I wouldn't have practiced very much. But it was a discipline. So the same thing can be said here of the virtues. Practice them. And again, not simply when you're in the mood because you won't do very well. Uh, because our flesh is not usually in the mood for those virtues, but it is a matter of discipline. The Word of God, enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit, will uh, enable us to uh, to practice these virtues. Paul says in Romans 8, verses 12 to 14, in this matter, he says, So then, brethren, we are under a, under obligation. Please notice that word. We have an obligation. Again, this is not uh, based on mood or how we feel about it um, or how things are going in our lives. But he says, you are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So these virtues become more and more a part of who we are as we practice them and just get inculcated into our very character. Peter says, uh, you will never stumble. Stumble is the Greek word pataio. Uh, it can't mean you will never sin. That's not at all what he's saying. You can never sin. No, not at all. And there's plenty of verses to uh, to point out the reality of that, that we don't reach sinless perfection in this life. 
I'll give you just a couple verses here. First John 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Hmm, pretty strong statement. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, There is not even a righteous man in the world who continually does good and never sins. First uh, Kings 8.46 says, When they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin... So, when they sin against you, Lord, for there is no man who does not sin. And it doesn't matter if you're righteous or unrighteous, obviously. There's no one who does not sin. And there's other, other passages as well, but hopefully you get the idea there. Uh, stumble, the Greek word pataio, does not mean you'll f- come to a place where you never sin. So, what does stumble mean? Well, uh, I like the idea, the New Testament idea of the word walk. When the New Testament talks about walking in Christ, walking in the Spirit, walking by faith, it means being in a healthy and growing relationship with Jesus Christ. For example, in Galatians 5.16, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. That's so plain, isn't it? Walk by the Holy Spirit, you won't carry out the desire of the flesh. So, stumble means not being in a healthy, growing relationship with Christ. And I think there's some examples we can look at of believers stumbling in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Corinthians 3, the first few verses there, Paul, and he's talking to Christians. He calls them brethren. There's never a case in the New Testament where uh, the lost are referred to as brethren. So Paul calls these people brethren, uh, clearly fellow Christians. But he says to them, you're still carnal. You're still living a fleshly life. And that's not where they should have been. They were stumbling. Uh, Hebrews 2.1 talks about drifting. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says. For this reason, we must pay much closer, much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. That would bring on stumbling. In fact, it is stumbling in and of itself. Uh, 1 Timothy 5.20 says, Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all. And that's what he's telling the uh, pastor Timothy, a younger pastor that Paul's writing to. He says, hey, if you've got people in the church, they may be Christians, uh, but they have no concern for repentance. You need to rebuke those, and you need to do, do it before the church. Um so, I mean, the assumption is there that these people are Christians who are continuing with sin. Now, there is, well, I want to make one distinction there, and I think this is an important distinction. I think it's very possible for Christians to have huge problem with a particular sin. We've talked before about the matter of besetting sin. I think that's something that we all have and, and can potentially can, can uh, uh, overwhelm us and do damage to us. And you can have that besetting sin, and you may commit it, you may really struggle with it, but you want to repent, and you keep going to the Lord in repentance and asking for forgiveness, uh, just like 1 John 1, 9 says. But there's also those who sin who apparently have no concern for repentance. I'm thinking about uh, a person in our church right now who I am 99% sure is a believer, but has no concern about a a, repent, a sin in her life is not repenting of it. That's a different matter than struggling with sin, but continuing to repent and trying to find victory. 
And, and so that's stumbling. Don't find yourself in a stumbling position spiritually. So, and again, here's the problem. I've known Christians who got themselves into a stumbling pattern, a stumbling spiritual pattern, and made bad choices. And with the bad choices came, of course, the terrible consequences. And sometimes this results in very difficult long-term trouble in their life, long-term reaping and uh, difficulty in their life that they didn't have to have if they would have just not put themselves in a place of stumbling. So remember this, uh, verse uh, chapter 1, verse 3 says, God has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything you need, God has provided to live godly lives. I mentioned nine things. That was a few a few sessions ago. I'll run over those again real quick, quickly. Nine things God has provided for all believers in every age. Scripture, the Holy Spirit, the opportunity for prayer, the opportunity to be engaged in a church, the gospel itself, which is the power of God, uh, spiritual leaders to uh, affect us and lead us. He's given us spiritual gifts to serve with. He's provided Christian fellowship and he's provided opportunity for worship. There's nine things God has granted to us so that we can live godly lives. Also, in verses five to seven, God enables us to live virtuous lives, diligence, moral excellence, knowledge of God, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And of course, especially we think of agape love there. And by the way, imagine, imagine all the sin, guilt, pain, trouble, hurt, regret, and sorrow you could avoid if you very successfully lived and diligently lived those eight virtues. Wow, that is transformative. And then he also said in verse 9, God enables us to live lives that are useful. Remember, we said that's the means of God's work and fruitful. That's the outcome of God's work. No need to stumble and, brothers and sisters, no excuse for falling into this stumbling Christian lifestyle. And may I remind you of one other thing, if all that isn't enough, don't forget 2 Corinthians 5.10. You and I are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and make an account for our lives. So get it right. Be diligent. Be engaged. Uh, Live godly lives. I'm going to read to you from uh, just two verses from Daniel chapter 6. This extraordinary man, Daniel, who was not engaged in stumbling in any way in his life. Here's what it says. Um, Of course, Daniel in chapter 6 had been promoted to a very high position. And uh, his his, uh, comrades, so to speak, uh, got to the point where they weren't real crazy about Daniel. Here's what verse 3 says. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint Daniel over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to governmental affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or any evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence was or corruption was to be found in Daniel. I read that because I want to encourage you, there's no need to stumble. You can walk consistently and faithfully with Christ. Maybe not 
absolute moral perfection, but you can have a, a great walk with him like Daniel, who, you know, even in the political realm that he was in, they couldn't find anything to accuse him of. And then one more verse here in uh, in Second Peter 1, verse 11, uh, Peter says, For in this way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Uh, he refers back here to verse 10, the statement about practice these things. Practice these things. For in this way, the entrance uh, into the eternal kingdom of Lord Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So again, he refers to the, the statement about practice these things. And I just went over those things from verse 3, from verses 5 through 7, from verse 9. So in the practice of these things, what's that doing for us? Well, it's making us certain about God's calling and choosing of us. God's calling and choosing of you as a Christian, as being part of his family. And the result then of that is, as Peter says, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. You can have... uh a 100% security about your salvation. You can have 100% assurance. You are going to heaven. You don't have to doubt that. You don't have to worry about that. You can be 100% certain. You are going to heaven. Uh, again, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior will be abundantly supplied to you. And it's not that you are saved, of course, I've, I feel compelled to remind us all, it's not that you are saved by those uh, those nine things we mentioned, Scripture, the Holy Spirit, prayer, and so forth. And it's not by your that you're saved by those eight virtues or by being useful and fruitful. But what do they do? They do make certain, they make certain of his calling and choosing of you. And again, that flows right along with the book of James, particularly James 2, as the evidence of your salvation. So our entrance into the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Thank you for listening. Appreciate your presence here as we study Second Peter. God bless you and uh, be back soon. <laughs>